Welcome to an Informed Live Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and with me is Javier Figueroa, my PhD partner. You know, he brings the brawn, I bring that mama passion, and together we're, we're bringing you information that we hope helps you make some informed decisions in your life in, in this in this age of really conflicting information out there, not knowing which way to turn around, we're throwing more at you to give you more to consider. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, you know, we have no vested interest at all. This is voluntary work. You know, I when I fell into this mission several years ago, um, you know, the more you know, the more you want to work for, for change. For, for scientific integrity and public health policy, um, you know, for, for safe science, for, you know, there's just so much. And, and you keep seeing things that you want to do that, and it grows and grows. And at this point, you know, for many of us activists, it's, it's seven days a week, you know, all voluntary. Um, uh, we love what we do. We are getting tired. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> I was thinking it would be nice to take, you know, maybe a whole day off and just goof off. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Javier, you know, you got a full-time job and you got little kids. So, you know, yep. maybe, maybe in 10 years you can have a half day off. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I want to thank all of our wonderful listeners um, and sponsors, members of Informed Choice Washington, people from all over who donate to in order to bring the show to you. And thank you to Children's Health Defense, who also make this show possible. We're so pleased to be streaming in the greater Puget Sound region on KKNW, right on your AM radio station, iPod, um, you know, podcasts, internet available. It really is wonderful how um, we can get some important things out there. And, you know, with that said, Javier, first of all, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, it's a Friday. So that yeah. means that uh, I, I don't have to work uh, as hard as I do on the weekends, but I Good. still work as hard. So. <laughs> yeah, but when the pressure isn't there, it's because you want to, not because exactly. you have to. That. That's different, you know, and I, I'm going to let our listeners, viewers know that in the past, I've apologized to to Javier for sometimes just kind of like ignoring him and talking right, right over him. <laughs> that, that's Bernadette's nothing personal. But, you know, when when I get my brain set on something, I'm going to say, by gum, there I go. And, you know, if you're not right in front of me going, hello. Um, <laughs> So Javier, he, and Javier is so dang polite. He doesn't like interrupt me and say, Bernadette, I need a word. Okay. <laughs> you got to get better. Hold on. Let me, let me practice this. Bernadette, I need a word. Okay. Oh, that's very good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, well, we have a great guest this first hour and maybe into the second if she has some extra time. So I'm, I want to welcome to the show um, Dr. Zaina Carver. She is a PhD um, and I just met her 
I can't even remember. I think it's only been six months or so, just a few months. I'm hoping that she's um, able to be here. I don't see there. We see her. Yay. <laughs> Sometimes it, you can have these technical difficulties zooming in from all corners of the world. Um, hello, Dr. Carver. Can hello. How yes. are you? I'm very good. Very good. Nice to see you. See the sun streaming in through your window there. Is it a pretty day in the Pacific Northwest? Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And the river is getting high and it's just birds are singing. They're back here. It's beautiful. Oh, that's great. That's great. So welcome to an Informed Life Radio. And have you met Javier Figueroa, our, uh, my co-host? Dr. Carver, how are you? It's a pleasure to meet you both. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. To meet you and to speak with you, Bernadette. Yes, yeah. we met. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I have a lot of people that are virtual friends. And, and I recently met a nurse that I'd only I'd interviewed twice, and had only um, spoken to on the phone. And I met her in person. I'm like, why can't I place you? You, you seem so familiar. But <laughs> anyway, um, so Dr. Carver, could, could you begin with giving us a little bit about who you are, your background um, as a scientist? Okay, well, I'm an associate professor of biology, and I teach mostly human anatomy and physiology. And as part of my doctorate degree, I did research in toxicology. Um, toxicology is the study of poisons and also pharmacokinetics, which is the movement of chemicals through the body. We did a lot of work with pesticides and developing a testing system to be able to detect pesticides in saliva. Now, before that, I did MRI. I worked in a hospital for 10 years, and I almost became a pharmacist. Interesting. Wow. What, in 2007. <laughs> what diverted you from becoming a pharmacist? What made you decide no? A miracle second pregnancy. Both pregnancies um, took a long time, and we had given up, and I applied, and they only accept 10% of their applicants. Interview went so well, and I had gotten accepted, and then I, I found out. And such a blessing to be a mom again and just you know take a little time off work and enjoy those, those early years that you don't get back. So yeah. a huge blessing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't right for me. Yeah, that you know, that's wonderful that the miracle of life um, puts you on a different path. Um, that led to us, and we're very grateful for that. You know, um, my husband and I had our 38th wedding anniversary yesterday, and our, our son is 18, so we too had a long path to getting our miracle child. So um, I know how precious uh, that time is. And so here you are, professor, and tell me your your thoughts and ideas about, let's say, FDA, CDC, vaccine safety prior to COVID, um, you know, where were you on the, the journey? Um, Javier's laughing at us, but we're... <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say that I'm curious about both of your journeys, too, and I hope that you can share just a little bit here. Mm -hmm. But for me, I had thyroid cancer in 2005 and I, I had it removed. And boy, what year was it? Around, oh, it could have been 2016, 2017. I had an endocrinologist who was only going off of one lab value. It's called a TSH. And all my symptoms were screaming that I was hypothyroid. But because that TSH remained 
um, low and it, it should raise if you're hypothyroid. What she did is she kept lowering my medication. And I, yeah. I went from, you know, all the typical symptoms being cold, uh, tired, dry skin, and then it would just get worse and worse. Every time she lowered the dose about a week later, it was just horrible. And I remember I, I got so many respiratory infections during that time. I couldn't sleep, but I was falling asleep all the time. I was worried about driving. I had horrible brain fog. And then I started to have symptoms of adrenal fatigue where you just can't handle stress and your blood sugar's up and down. And I mean, it, it was horrible. I went from you know, being in decent health to just barely getting out or being able to get out of bed and, and at risk of, of losing my internship because of those dose changes. So what I did is I went back up to the dose I was on before. And in about a week, I started feeling better. And when I went to see my endocrinologist, she screamed at me. She said, how dare you do that? That's so, un that's so dangerous. You should, I've never done that. And just, I wanted to crawl under a chair. I was so terrified. She was so angry with me. But I said, look, I feel better. Isn't something going on more than what's showing up on your lab test? Right. And so long story short, I ended up finding a naturopathic doctor, um, Dr. Smith, and he got me straightened out because I was hypothyroid and I had adrenal fatigue for so long that he had to go through a whole process of restoring vitamins and minerals. I was extremely low in iron, in B12 and vitamin D. And so um, getting my gut health back. I mean, all of that was a process, but I learned that, oh, how do I say this lightly? That medicine's black and white sick care approach was not right for me. And that when it comes to chronic conditions, there's so much that natural health approach can offer that that was my first clue that pharmacy or pharmaceutical companies really had influenced the way that medicine is taught and the way that medicine is practiced. And, uh, yeah, that, that was my first indication. I that that follows. A lot of people have something where they ran into like a wall or something that didn't make sense. It didn't make common sense how something was being explained to them. And it um and it does seem like the cookie cutter approach. A lot of people found that was causing harm. Obviously, it was it was leading to you're not able to find the right solution, the cookie cutter approach. Um, and that was that was sort of our journey. Um, my son developed anaphylactic allergies in early infancy um, from his vaccines, and his pediatrician did not know that some of the things he was anaphylactically allergic to were actually vaccine components, and she wanted to continue vaccinating him. Um, so that was the beginning of my journey. There's more to it. And then Javier, I, what was your journey? I believe it was COVID, was it? COVID was my journey. Uh, very early on when we started getting the data in from Italy, um, and we were seeing some of the early returns, like, you know, these are people in their 80s that are dying, and they're, they're saying, you know, the reports were contradictory. I started to realize, wait a minute, the demographic data doesn't make sense. I mean, it aligns with a respiratory virus producing these deaths, but we've had other respiratory viruses. And why are the Italian doctors not prescribing or doing something that can help these patients? They're treating it like a really, really contagious, deadly disease. It was contagious. It was deadly if you didn't treat it properly, but they were first told to be afraid not to do anything about it because it could contaminate them and kill them. And therefore they were isolating these patients and allowing them to die. And of course that data was, you know, in the, in the first three months was so stark 
that I said, this is ridiculous. This, this cannot be possible. And then that's when I heard about you and some of the reports that you were doing and all the work that you've been doing and how all of this fit hand in glove with what the, what was now in my, what is now in my opinion, a medical cartel designed to funnel money towards hospitals and pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. and basically keep people afraid and sick. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Everybody's got a different journey that, that they're on. And that's why I always encourage people to grace in their heart. And, and if you meet somebody on the path, who's not where you are, you know, step away from each other for a time, but leave that door open for them to continue yeah. to make the journey, continue to offer information. Um, Cause you never know. I think of Helen Keller, you know, and it was that teacher who finally did the, put their hand under the water and did the W in the palm. And then it clicked, it clicked. Everybody has that click moment. And yeah. once it happens, it's wow. It can be so wonderful. So, so then Dr. Carver COVID came along and, and then you began to see, something wasn't right or what happened with you yes okay so going back to doing research in toxicology i always found endocrine disruption interesting and i noticed some tricks in the studies that were done um, to make a chemical seem a bit safer than it actually was so i was a little bit clued into that but the thing is i i heard about it in boy very early on and i didn't think it was a huge threat and then before you know it, our lives were turned upside down overnight. We were actually out of town. We were in Tucson, Arizona during that time. And I had students freaking out about their final exams. They had to get home to their family, fly to different states. I mean, it was, it was chaos. Um, so something just didn't feel right from the start. But where it really started to, I guess, where I had some insight was where everybody was talking about the vaccine. we got to get this vaccine. we got to get this vaccine. Okay. That sounds great. Yes. Yes. We want people to be safe. Uh, it sounds like a good option, but when it did come out six to eight months later, I'm thinking, wow, you know, drug development, vaccine development takes 10 to 15 years. How in the world were they able to pull this off? Did they really do all the studies? I mean, is this, is this really safe? And then I started looking into the ingredients. And I noticed there's the polyethylene glycol, which is something I'm a little bit sensitive to. So I was a little bit leery of that one. I started looking into J&J &J more heavily because, you know, everybody at my work was just talking like, this is the thing to do. You have to just go out and get this vaccine. Well, when I started to look into J&J, &J, they had a halt on it during that time. And it was contraindicated for women of my age of, I don't know, 30 to 50 or something because of the risk of blood clots. And so here I'm at a high risk for J&J. Um, not a good match because of some of the ingredients for the other two. I thought, well, maybe I'll just hold off a little bit, you know, let the people who are really at high risk get this. And I don't think my risk is that high anyway. I'm healthy. I eat healthy. I take my vitamins. You know, do I, is this really for me? Um, I prayed on it. I knew it would make my life easier at work if I just went ahead and got it like everybody else. But I prayed on it. And I had a dream that night that, I waited to the last minute, got the J&J, &J, begged the person doing the injection not to give me the full dose, just inject half, you know, fill out my card. That's, that's all I need, just half. But in the dream, she had injected all of it. And I was waiting to have a stroke and be disabled for the rest of my life. And I knew for a fact in my dream that I was going to have a stroke and be disabled. And to me, being disabled and having to have, rely on other people is worse than death. 
I would take my chances with a virus any day over the risk of having a blood clot and having to be disabled. So at that point in time, I knew this was not right for me. God did not want this for me. And, um, you know, I, I applied for religious exemption and I've been really fortunate that my employer has been great about all of this. And I respect a person's choice. If you want to get that vaccine, that's okay. But we should all, and if you don't, that's okay too, but we should all have that choice and we all need proper informed consent about the full risks and benefits. And for young, healthy people, it may not make any sense. For Omicron, when it was developed against the Alpha variant, it may not make any sense. And certainly for children who are at a zero risk of COVID. In fact, I calculated it um, in Washington State, 0.000735% risk of death from COVID. It's not an emergency. It yeah. is less dangerous than the flu. So if we look at the complete picture, risk versus benefit, it doesn't make sense for a lot of people, and especially those who are COVID recovered. Mm -hmm. Natural immunity is much better than any vaccine could ever provide, and this isn't a true vaccine. That's another topic. But we know from at least 145 studies that natural immunity is broad, durable, and robust. Let people make up their own choice. I'm against mandates. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and and but they have to have that full information. They have to know um, way more than they're being told. I do not believe that there has been any informed consent from the get-go on this rollout. Um, the public health agencies continue to use the marketing message of, um, oh, well, you know, it, it wasn't really rolled out fast. We just did a lot of things in parallel. Mm -hmm. Some things you cannot, you cannot, th that, that parallel term doesn't fit for long-term safety studies. You can't speed time. Do they have a time machine? Did they go ahead five years to see five-year outlook, three-year outlook, two-year outlook, one-year outlook? They didn't do any of that. And as we know with the, the release, the beginning to be released of the, all the Pfizer clinical trial data of so much that that was not known. I don't know if um, Javier, if you've been following that to to chip in on some of the information there that has been released. Just the uh, the most well the the older material, the released information regarding the post uh, marketing or the post uh, authorization surveillance report, where they mm -hmm. showed that they uh, you know they had over one thousand two hundred ninety nine deaths associated with uh, a population of forty two thousand people that they were following. That's 2.9% death rate from a vaccine. Mm -hmm. It should, it should, it ideally it should be zero, but yeah. most of the time you're seeing something in the range of 0.01 to mm -hmm. 0.08 in terms of death associated with a vaccine. It, oh, that, that gets reported to VAERS. Yeah. Uh, but this was 2.9 from Pfizer's own data. And now that the FDA has basically, or the, my apologies, the judge has ruled that FDA has to release all the Pfizer data. I think we're going to find such egregious violations of proper clinical trial and uh, reporting and basically manipulation of uh, people. For example, if you get one shot and get COVID, you're, you were taken off the, uh, uh, the clinical trial. Or again, if you got one shot and died, you were taken off the clinical trial. So there was a whole many ways to manipulate it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Or if you were injured, like little Maddie DeGray, who's now in a wheelchair yep. um, and, and with a feeding tube. Um, so, yeah, the, the, a lot of dirty tricks were done. And I, um, 
it's being announced that I guess Pfizer has put out to their their investors, you know, a little bit of a warning about their stock yeah. value may drop if information um, comes out that might have negative implications. Uh, so they're already bracing for that. So the market is responding. It's 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 so criminal, and I just ache and I pray for those who trusted, you know, what they were told. And, and thought they were doing the right thing for themselves, for their children, for their family, for their neighbor. Um, and we have to find healing moving forward. So, um, so Dr. Carver, um, in Washington State, the Board of Health is tasked or authorized, the 10 members who are hand-selected by the governor, they are the ones who decide what vaccines will be required for daycare and school entry. And in the state of Washington, there are personal, religious, and medical exemptions available. So a few months ago, uh, the board decided they were going to look into adding the COVID-19 shots to daycare and school requirement, even though for most of those age groups, they're still um, only under EUA, and the youngest ones don't even have EUA yet. Um, so, of course, we found this very alarming. We, in Form Choice Washington, filed a petition um, asking the board to create a new rule for themselves that would prohibit them from um, mandating um, experimental products. You know, there's just no safety. And, you know, in my book, if there is, let's say there's a zombie apocalypse and there's just some horrific thing coming out and there's some emergency product that comes out that the government says, we want you to get this because everything is so bad, which is what they try to make COVID look like. We've got no long-term safety studies. We don't even have decent short-term safety studies. We want you to get it. That will always be the right of the individual and the parent guardian to make. I don't care how bad it is. The government in that situation never, ever, ever, ever has the right. And if that product is looking safe and effective enough, people will choose it of their own volition. You don't have to force them to do it, right? Um, but the board decided they would not ever tie their hands of some future calamity from being able to mandate experimental products. The thing is, they're acting as if they have the right to do it and they do not have the legal right to do it because emergency use authorized products, you cannot, you have to tell the person they have the right to opt out, no strings attached, which means mandates cannot apply. But anyway, so you... Dr. Carver have and and along with um, Laura, who um, oh Gabriel um, has have done a great job in looking at some of the data that a technical advisory group formed by the Board of Health have been that they looked at over three meetings to evaluate these shots in order to make a recommendation to the Board of Health. Yeah, we think you should add it. No, we don't think you should. And so you have been looking at that in depth, and I'm so grateful for that. People can find that. Go to informedchoicewa.org, um, and you can find it. More is coming. It takes a long time to evaluate this, but the, I'm, I'm not even quite sure where to launch you. Where would you like to begin in, in your feedback on your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I love Informed Choice's petition to for them to not be able to mandate 
injections, whatever you want to call it, that are under emergency use and have not undergone phase three clinical trials. If they could just agree to those two things, this whole argument would be done or disagreement or whatever you want to call it. The whole, I'm going to say clown show here with the um, song and dance, we'll get into that. But it would protect the children. It would give parents what they want. It would give voters what they want. It would be a huge win for medical freedom. We're not saying that people can't get this emergency treatment if they want it. If And like you said, if, if the benefit outweighs the risk, people are naturally going to do it. But when you have Big Bird and Elmo saying, be a superhero and you've got to get this to protect grandma and you're going to lose your job if you don't and you might win the lottery or get a scholarship if you do get it, Something's wrong. This should never be forced. So that's the big issue. What right does the TAG and the State Board of Health under their recommendation have to determine what's right for our children? Again, it goes back to that cookie cutter approach. And I, I don't know about you. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't think all of them are medical doctors. How can they practice medicine not knowing each individual child and all of their, their um their, their entire health history and any possible risk that they might have. They don't know that. They can't mm -hmm. dictate what's best for every single child. It might be right for some children. It might be wrong for every single child. We don't know that. But I think the choice has to come down to the parent and the individual physician. So just saying that, um, next I want to say how amazing Laura Gabriel is. She really did all the legwork on the efficacy part of this, which is a huge part. And I really think that in many ways, and I, I'm sure I can, I'm going to get criticized for this, but in many ways, Omicron has been a blessing because it's given so many people natural immunity. And it's also opened up the eyes of people who are vaccinated that it really doesn't protect the way that we were told it would protect. And I can give you one example. I just saw my eye doctor and he said he had to go to Canada for a funeral. His whole family, the whole extended family, everybody had to get vaccinated to be on the plane, to be at the funeral and to get back into the country. And they all caught COVID. Everybody. It went through the whole family. I think everybody, I mean, unless you're living under a rock, has seen that lots of vaccinated people are getting COVID and many are getting sick. I, I, I believe the data is the data is now showing that it has negative efficacy for Omicron. Um, yes. Here in Tennessee, uh, Ryan Cole, Dr. Ryan Cole, and Dr. Richard Urso recently testified before a committee, and they said with the original variant, there may have been for a very short time a very small, a limited bit of efficacy. Um, but that wore off and, and of course the, the risks outweighed any tiny benefit. And then for Delta, it was like nothing and Omicron negative. And that's what the, um, and I can't cite the studies the way they can. Um, so yeah, so there we are. So it, it, it's just, it's mind boggling that the board of health is even considering it. Why would you consider it if it doesn't stop infection, transmission, colonization. It, it, it's not even targeted toward the current circulating variant. The children, are, I mean, nothing makes any sense. I don't understand why um, there, are, there are certain members of the Board of Health that seem for this. The others are very silent on it. It's being pushed forward um, very much by one or two individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And 
you know, something that they keep coming back to is playing on people's emotions within these meetings. How many people have you lost from COVID? How has that affected you? And they keep coming back to this virus is so scary and it's such an emergency. But when you calculate that risk for children and the report was that 13 children have died from COVID, I don't know from COVID, it could be with COVID, maybe they had comorbid conditions. But when you calculate the risk for children to be 0.000735%, it's not an emergency. So then we really need to take a closer look at the safety. And that's where I really have a problem. What they're doing is they're scaring people about the virus. They're scaring people about myocarditis caused by the virus, and especially about MISC which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is very severe and it's not specific to COVID. But what they're doing is they're causing this perception that the virus is more likely to cause those conditions when in fact, the injections are more likely to cause death, myocarditis and multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is called MISV if it's caused by the vaccination. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize that. Now, um, I, I dive into the details if you could, if you have that before you. Yeah, and you're welcome to share. Go ahead. Thank you. I, I don't have the analysis complete. I did it in parts, but I want to discuss an endocrinologist, and I have to get that name too. I had it all pulled up on my computer, and then I had to do a a restart here. But he came up with this theory. He looked at autopsies from young men who recently had a vaccination and died from um, sudden cardiac arrest caused by myocarditis caused by the vaccine. And it was conclusively proven, but he looked at the inflammatory patterns. And what he found is that the inflammatory patterns of myocarditis from the virus is different than myocarditis from the vaccine. And furthermore, it's similar to the inflammatory patterns seen with an excess of catecholamines. So catecholamines are hormones produced by the adrenal gland. Um, it includes adrenaline and noradrenaline, also known as epinephrine and norepinephrine. These are your fight or flight hormones. And it makes sense that this could be responsible for the myocarditis. It makes sense that um, this could be related to the sudden cardiac arrest. And it also explains the fact why young men are more susceptible to myocarditis. It explains the fact why young athletes are dying suddenly of cardiac arrest because when they're exercising, they're in that fight or flight response. And that's going to trigger the cardiac problems if they're there from the vaccine. Um, so it, it really ties a lot of this together, but it, it's so concerning and sad that they are pushing this on well, okay, young men who have the risk for myocarditis, but also young women when we don't know the effects on the reproductive system. And from the biodistribution study, we know that the lipid nanoparticle carriers concentrate in the ovaries, as well as other tissues like bone marrow, the adrenal cortex, the thyroid gland, the pituitary gland, all of these very important organs that you do not want to have any access to this messenger RNA. And do you, what do you know of lipid nanoparticles in themselves and, and what they do? Lipid nanoparticles are, so they've gone through this, this whole progression for drug delivery. And they have it down to a science. But the fact that they're lipid and they're nanoparticles means that they're very good at crossing cell membranes. They can actually cross the blood-brain barrier, the blood-placental barrier, 
and the blood testes barrier. And there is evidence of that. Now there's also dendromers which can target specific tissues. So they're using very advanced types of delivery. And what we were told is that it stays in the deltoid muscle, that it causes the deltoid muscle tissues to produce the spike protein. But that's not the case. It's actually taken up by the lymphatics, which they personally um, purposefully did not test the lymphatic tissue draining the lymph nodes um, from the deltoid muscle. It takes it straight to the liver and then it's super highway through the cardiovascular and the lymphatic system to have access to every structure, every tissue in the body. We don't know what tissues, what cells are going to be producing spike. And I just want to explain why this was a bad idea from the beginning. If, if you have time for that, if that's okay. Oh, definitely. I, you go ahead. And then I wanted to um, share because from the get-go, you know, we have been, um, let me see, do a, a tap on this. So I just want to show you, you know, we've been looking for a long time at things. So here's an article on our website or a post on Informed Choice Washington website. Why do lipid containing mRNA vaccines make you feel sick? And, and we've got some information about lipid nanoparticles. If you go to our website and just search for like lipid, you will find a couple of articles that talk about the history of the use of it. And up until 2020, when all of this um, began, you know, it was well acknowledged that there were safety concerns that that you know that scientists were aware of for using this delivery mechanism those had those problems had not been solved when they began putting together you know these injections so yes let's get into the weeds a little bit i think um, our listeners would like that that is a great point and for good reason <laughs> yeah there's a whole history there um but going back to why I think it was a bad idea in the first place, when you think of a traditional vaccine, it introduces a protein, a piece of a pathogen. It can be, you know, attenuated, weakened um, in some form that it's not going to cause the infection, but it exposes the body to that antigen so that an immune response can be mounted and memory can be developed. And that if a person is exposed to it in real life, they can mount a very fast, efficient, long duration response. And hopefully not even get sick. Yeah. But in this I, yeah. Let, let me, I just want to pause right here because I want to point out that one of the presentations given to the TAG members, the technical advisory group assembled by the Board of Health, one of them, a nurse with the Department of Health, I believe her name is um, Kathy Bay. Her, one of her slides says that, that these mRNA vaccines, as she called them, um, are harmless because they just, they introduce a little piece of the virus. I mean, she described it like you, like a traditional vaccine was absolutely false. It was really, it was really very frustrating. Um, you know, her simplistic kindergartner and, and not even the right technology description. Um, yeah. So explain to us um, from a higher education level, <laughs> why these are so different. Well, that's a great point, too, because a lot of their criteria specifically refer to the antigen, and mm -hmm. it's not giving the antigen. It's causing the body to produce the antigen. And why that's dangerous is because immune cells function on a, if it, something looks foreign, they're going to attack it. Mm -hmm. So what happens when your body's cells start making this foreign protein? Well, yes, they're going to attack the foreign protein, the spike protein, as you would expect, and build up some memory and antibodies and T-cell responses to that. 
but also to the cells that are producing the spike, meaning mm -hmm. you are teaching the body to attack its own tissues. Now, would you really want the immune cells uh, attacking, you know, the liver cells, the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels or um, the lymphatic system or neurons, um, cardiac cells? I mean, anywhere, anywhere in the body that these lipid nanoparticles can take the messenger RNA to, they can uptake and produce the spike. Mm -hmm. So I agree with Dr. Ryan Cole. He's done an excellent job on this, but he mentioned how he's seeing an increase in autoimmune conditions, cancer, and latent viruses, because what it's doing is it's taking resources from the immune system, attacking the body's own tissues, where there's less resources to fight the latent infections that the body's always kept under control, or the normal cancerous cells that the body produces all the time, which are usually never a problem if the immune system is functioning correctly. Now, mm -hmm. the second problem I have with this approach is that it's systemic, right? It's injected into the bloodstream, but how do you get a respiratory infection? Through the mucosal membranes. And when you're exposed naturally to a cold or a flu, you produce secretory IgA and it protects the borders of the body from getting sick, which is why I think that vaccinated people are more likely to spread COVID than unvaccinated because they have those neutralizing antibodies in the borders, the mucosal membranes of the body to prevent and take care of this virus before it ever even gets into the blood. Yeah, I've never, I like that expression, the borders of the body. Um, you know, that's, that makes a lot of sense to present it that way. I found that slide and I, I want to show the slide from the tag meeting. Um, and let's see, let me go ahead and do that PowerPoint. I, I quoted her wrong and to give her credit, it's still inaccurate, but I wanted to show it accurately. So the Department of Health told the tag that how the mRNA vaccine works, that messenger RNA known as mRNA, teaches your cells to produce a harmless piece of coronavirus spike protein. So I was remembering incorrectly, but it's to say that it, it makes your body produce a harmless piece of the spike protein. No, it makes your body make the entire spike protein, which is now known to be the most pathogenic part of the virus. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes. So there's, there's the receptor binding domain, there's S1, there's S2, but what they've done with studies of the spike protein is that if you inject them intravenously into mice or rats, it causes the same conditions that we're seeing reported in bears. Myocarditis, if we're talking about the Pfizer or Moderna, and uh, thrombosis, any type of blood clotting condition if we're talking about J&J. &J. So that gives you biological plausibility that if you inject the spike protein, it is responsible for causing these conditions that we're seeing. And, you know, I love that you bring up a biological studies because so many people have always trusted, they say, well, look at all the studies over the years, over all these vaccine products that shows, you know, they're safe and effective. You know, these are epidemiological studies. They're comparing outcomes in this group to this group. Rarely are biological studies done to show the mechanisms that could cause the injuries being seen, you know, and epidemiologic could, when you're looking at how strong evidence is, where do, how do epidemiological studies compare to biological studies? I mean, and how are they used together? 
So there is this huge dichotomy between toxicology studies that are typically high dose. They're focused on the biology. They've got, you know, control groups. It's, it's very, um, very good for looking at mechanism. And they criticize the epidemiologists that, um, that it, they're weaker studies and that you have all of these confounders and that you can't really rely on them. You need the biological toxicity studies. But epidemiologists, they criticize the toxicologists because they say, well, you use high dose and that's not what people are exposed to in the real world. So each has their own benefit and limitations. Um, as far as epidemiology, it's, it's hard to do dose reconstructions. I guess with this vaccine, it's, it's fairly easy, but usually that's the case. Um, but each has their own benefit and limitation. When you put them together, that's where you can really get at the truth. So I want to talk about the Bradford Hill criteria. We're seeing, you know, just huge reports in VAERS and also the DMED database, the Defense Epidemiological Medical Database, um, also reports from insurance companies. And that alone is concerning, but it doesn't prove any causation. It, it's just shows an association, right? But then when you combine that with the autopsy studies, the pathology reports where they tested the tissues and found the spike protein and determined the cause of death, when you test the lab work, if you're looking at biomarkers such as D-dimer levels, um, CRP and other inflammatory markers, if you have a before and after the injection, that's pretty strong evidence. And then when you combine it with other types of studies like surveys, and they're showing what people are seeing in, in real life, if everything is consistent and saying the same thing, you can prove causality. And especially if you have a dose response or temporality. So for instance, if you are charting um, deaths after days from the injection, and you see that most of them are happening within 48 hours, then you know that there's a strong association there because if death reports are, let's say they have nothing to do with the injection and they're reported at, you know, two days after, a month after, a week after, you'd expect to see a scatter all over the place and no exactly. real pattern to it. But if there is a biological mechanism there, there's going to be a very consistent temporality. And dose response means does that risk increase with two injections versus one? And now that we have boosters, is a person at a greater risk after the third or even the fourth injection. When you can show all of that, you can prove causality. And one more correlate to that, if I may add, uh, the amount of effort that's, that is being brought forth to alter data is also a critical one. So let me just show, share real quick here. Uh, and you mentioned DMED. And Greg, can you see my screen now? Um, there, there we go. There it is. Mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, it, it, it's embarrassingly bad uh, the, the, the job that uh, the people that uh, run the DMED database, how embarrassingly bad their efforts were to obfuscate the data. And can you explain what the DMED uh, database is? Defense Medical Epidemi Epidemiological Database. And it basically <laughs> tracks epidemiological events within the military medical community and okay. people that are served by the military medical community. And so, for our, our radio listeners, explain what you're, we're seeing. So here's a graph of uh, all the reports of acute myocardial infar infarctions per 100,000 population, age adjusted. I picked Florida because they had a fairly good database for myocardial infarctions that were age, age adjusted. And this is the report that came out of DMED from a whistleblower that Tom Rents uh, was able to, uh, you know, is they're uh, defending and, and promoting. And here you can see that 
you know, the rate of myocardial infarction, infarction, pardon me, basically a heart attack or a stroke, uh, is pretty consistent 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. You can see that the rate is approximate. And then in 2021, it jumps up to this incredibly high rate. And it looks like it's mm-hmm. uh, about... Uh, about six times higher, about five six to times six. Higher. Yeah, mm-hmm. five to six times higher. But here's the sick part. Because uh, then all of a sudden there was a uh, a correction put out by the people that, that run the DMED database. And they corrected all the data saying, oh, for five years we had a glitch. And these are the actual real numbers of myocardial infarction that wow. we've actually witnessed. So they're trying to do post uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, post-reporting corrections and try to normalize it to the 2021 uh, rollout of the vaccine, quote, I shouldn't say vaccine, of the injections, the COVID-19 injections, to try and make it look like it's just normal, which it isn't. So This is Mickey Mouse. So could what did it look like in 2015, 14, 13, 12, 11? And could some sort of forensic an- analyst who know how to go back and actually search their medical records. I mean, if they can't produce the actual people with names and social security numbers and ID to go along with these brand new, you know, cases, um, you know, it, it seems like it's pretty hard to to cr- just create out of the blue that many heart attacks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I want to talk about Albert Benavides. He has done amazing work with VAERS. And what he does is he tracks it. So they'll download weekly reports. And he also uses the Wayback system. And Dr. Jessica Rose has done work on this, too. What they found is that they're actually removing reports. And it's specifically geared towards certain reports. So I actually I have an email from him where they're researching a toddler's death that disappeared from VAERS. They're doing everything possible to make this go away. And while we're talking about that, I just want to clarify for your audience that they criticize VAERS as being self-reported. Anybody can make a report. But in reality, it's 85% healthcare workers who make those reports, 15% are patients or family, and they do vet those reports. They'll remove duplicate reports. But Dr. Jessica Rose did this analysis, and she found out that there's quite a surprising number of reports removed without any explanation. And the thing is, it's a felony. It's a federal offense to falsify a report. I really don't buy that people are just making up a report out of the blue. What's much more likely is that busy clinicians don't have time, they're not aware of VAERS, or they might fear for their job because there have been physicians fired for making VAERS reports. And out of all three of those, we know that the underreporting factor is somewhere between 10 and 100. And Steve Kirsch calculated it as 41. Dr. Jessica Rose is is 31. So you have to multiply those reports times at least 30 to even get closer to the truth. And this is something from those tag meetings is that one presenter, and I'm not going to use his name, mentioned how much more he relies on vSafe and VSD, the vaccine safety data link. So yes. VSafe is a phone app and it's really limited. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, only certain things can be reported. So when they give you this chart and they say that oh, most of the symptoms are mild, you know, arm soreness, mild elevated temperature, headache, a little bit of nausea or whatever, those are the choices that people are given. But are they given anything else like elevated no. D-dimer, chest pain, any of the serious stuff? It's not even an option. And there have been vaccine damaged people who were kicked out of this app specifically so they couldn't report things. Exactly. Wow. Maddie DeGray, for example. Yes. And then as far as VSD, it's completely closed off to the public. I wrote a really nice email as an independent scientist. Is there any opportunity for collaboration? Can I have access to this data? Flat out, no. Nothing. Yeah. No. And if you can't repeat and verify science, it's not science. I mean, you have, that's what science is, is people coming at it from different ways, different groups, studying it, see if it's repeatable. If it's not repeatable and verifiable, you know, um, yeah, that's, it's really a shame. And then, um, you know, the likes of Fauci and, and others say, oh, well, if you look in bears, you're going to see car accidents. And, you know, they, they poke fun of it as if to say that none of it's reliable. Um, but a close look, and we've got a post on our website recently that goes over some of these things. First of all, if you look for the term like car accident, there's actually a code for a traffic accident. You don't find very many, but I encourage people to look and go and look what you see. And you will see a description that'd be something like received um, the injection, was feeling lightheaded, stayed until felt better, um, got into a car accident on the way home because she felt dizzy. The next day was brought into the ER, blah, blah. Okay, so you see where that car accident fell. And then you have others where, you know, passed out or had cardiac arrest. And, you know, in the car accident is very obviously um, uh, connected in some way to some side effect of the shot. And other times there, there appeared to maybe not be an association. Um, drownings, they often map you know, mock, oh, something you put drown and they think, well, you know, it's, it is well known and acknowledged even by the CDC that syncope can happen um, post vaccination it can be an ongoing recurring. It's not just for the hour following. It can be the next day. It can be an ongoing problem. Um, it's a huge problem with the HPV vaccine. And if you're swimming and, you know, you, you have one of those fainting moments. Yeah. Drowning can follow. So, you know, to mock these things is just criminal. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. How are we doing on time? We've got a few more minutes. Um, so first of all, let me ask, after we go to the break in a few minutes, will you be able to stay a bit more? I just want to know how we're going to, if we're going to wind things up now, or if you'll be able to hang on for a bit. Sure, I can stay. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So uh, let's just continue down this path of where you're doing. You're revealing some some really good information. Um, what are we touching on next here? I just want to mention how the lack of transparency, when you have Pfizer and the FDA fighting in court to hide their safety data for 55 and then 75 years, what are they hiding? Or when you get your hands on the non-clinical evaluation report, um, or what they were, what they finally released, and there's huge pages blacked out, redacted. Again, this, this all just screams of lack of transparency. I just wish that they would be open and honest and let people make up their own mind rather than doing everything possible to smear the scientists and the doctors who are doing their job and looking into this 
and also to you know sway public opinion and let's talk about that misinformation disinformation uh for just a minute okay so i i pulled this up and now i don't have it in front of me but they pulled up um see if i can find it again they have three different definitions and these have changed they've got misinformation disinformation malinformation but the basic gist of this is that what they're doing is they're scaring anybody from speaking out so misinformation is false, but not created or shared with the intention of causing harm. I won't read all these. Disinformation, though, is meant to mislead to cause harm. And then malinformation has some fact, but it's twisted. But what this really does is it dissuades people from speaking up and, and just giving the truth. Because what they're saying from this is that any type of information that reduces confidence in our governmental agencies or could possibly lead to violence in any way labels you as a domestic terrorist. Exactly. And I don't know how other people feel about that, but I don't consider myself a domestic terrorist no. for just being honest. I, you know, I feel just the opposite. I feel like um, the public health entities that are captured in this country are committing domestic violence against us, that it's an act of war against the American people. And we are freedom fighters. We are peaceful freedom fighters. We will go, we will rally, we will you know, deliver information all very peacefully. We are doing all we can to reveal the corruption and the fraud and the terror that they are, um, I dare say, um, putting upon us. This, um, this stems back to the very first time the government of the United States decided to work with the drug industry to make vaccines their tool of choice. From day one, they knew if they um, allowed full information about the risks of these products to be out there, they wouldn't be able to convince as many people to get them. And that idea has become a monster. Um, it was like a noble lie that has turned into what we're experiencing today. And um, so, you know, that's where we sit. And that's what we tried to re be revealing pre-COVID. It took tragically something as big um, and fraudulent and harmful as COVID, the response to COVID, for others to truly see it and then decide, you know, I've, I've got a rather crude expression and I apologize, but it just fits it so well. It's stand up or bend over time, people. Yep. It's now or never. We all have to uh, stand up. And I see that we're out of time for this hour. So we're going to take a break for a few minutes and we're going to bring Dr. Carver back. I'm so glad she can stay with us. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. 
but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm Bernadette Pager, and with me is Javier Figueroa, and Dr. Zaina um, Carver is coming to us. I'm in Tennessee. They're in Washington State. We got you covered coast to coast here. Well, I'm not quite on the coast, but pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, in that first hour, we were covering a lot of information about the COVID shots, um, you know, kind of focusing on some of the information um, that the technical advisory group assembled by the Washington State Board of Health had been presented with information we wish they had known. Um, but and, and I want to point out a couple of things to listeners is they had a series of three meetings. And after the third one, they were asked to do an overall vote. You know, and a lot of the information, as we have covered here, has been very biased. There was actually some fairly good information, I've, I've got to say. One epidemiologist with the state did give some, some pretty good information that seemed fair. Um, others, you had to really look at it closely to, you know, to see. But nevertheless, at the end of that meeting, the majority vote was to not recommend to the Board of Health to add the shots. Now that said, the Board of Health does not have to take the recommendation of the TAG. And I, um, I want to applaud actually the members of the TAG for their very thoughtful decision because they were hand chosen because they do trust the Department of Health and the Board of Health. They trust the CDC. These were individuals chosen because that's the world perspective that they had. Nobody from our side, from the vaccine risk aware community, were invited to participate, even though like Javier had requested to be able to participate. Nobody was invited. <clears throat> we weren't invited to have any experts on our side provide al uh, alternative views. Despite this, these individuals, I believe, really worked their very hardest to grapple with the information and to make a decision. And the majority vote was um, not to make that recommendation. Now, the Board of Health can decide not to accept that. And it, it is looking like um, not next week at the Board of Health meeting, but the following month in April. The April meeting is when it will be before them and they may make that decision. An awful lot can happen between now and then. But I do encourage um, people to write to the Board of Health and express your concerns, send them science, send them links to the high wire, send them all kinds of good stuff. Um, send them to Dr. Carver's Substack um, articles. Can you tell listeners, um, Dr. Carver, about how to get to your Substack? 
It's under Dr. Carver Substack. My title of my Substack or subscription is called Silenced No More, and it's free. You can have access to anything that I write. I love that. Now, um, Javier, I don't know about you, but I, I get a lot of great information from some of these Substack authors who have been censored on other platforms. We're talking about, you know, you know, the father of mRNA vaccine technology, Dr. Robert Malone. Um, our beloved Dr. James Lyons-Weiler has a great substack. Um, Jessica Rose has, um, Dr. Jessica Rose has substack. Um, uh, Lara Gabriel, who's been on the show, has, uh, has one. It's a great platform that is not being censored. And you're going to find some fantastic voices there and some information, well-researched, usually fully cited and hyperlinked, you know, to the references for you to do some um, research. Uh, I did put a post recently on Informed Choice Washington's website with some of our favorite Substack authors and links to them if anybody wants to check that out. Um, where were we? Does anybody quite recall before we went to the break, where were we <laughs> in our conversation? Oof. Uh, I think we're talking about the tag and uh, some of the data that's uh, out there right now, uh, showing that there's oh, a real disparity. Yeah, mis, mal, disinformation, these terms, and, and domestic terrorism um, is what they're being, and, and, and them being the terrorists. But we cannot let fear, fear is their biggest tool, and we cannot let that, and that's easy for me to say, I have no job to lose. I volunteer for everything. You know, I, I'm in an easy spot where standing in my truth is pretty easy to do. Um, yeah. How about you, Dr. Carver? Are you getting any professional feedback or, or pushback for your being vocal um, on your concerns about what's the policies um, that are happening? So I'll, I'll say that I stay off of Facebook. I was kicked off of Twitter because I reposted something from Dr. Malone and it made me delete my post before I could use Twitter again. And I refused. I've never gone back. So I think the people who come to Substack are generally the people who want the truth and are looking for genuine, um, you know, authors who are writing what they know to be true, not just propaganda, not just the typical narrative that's being passed around. And I have noticed, though, on LinkedIn, I get followed by the strangest groups. So I've had Pfizer executives follow me. I had some voice recognition after it was on a, a radio uh, channel, not the kids campaign. I did that a couple of Sundays. Um, so I and then there's some tech companies and, and I find it odd that, you know, maybe they're watching me and watching what I'm doing. But I'm really careful what I do and what I say professionally versus my activism, which is on the side, and I keep that localized to Substack. And sometimes I'm on Clubhouse, but I try mm -hmm. to find the right audience because not everyone is open to the truth. Some people, it, it, I think it would be almost painful for them to admit that maybe their decision was wrong or, or maybe they didn't get all the information. I mean, I don't even have a word for, it's beyond cognitive dissonance. It's, it's, admitting that you're wrong with new information. And I know that there's some people there. So I never push information on people who aren't ready for it. What I try to do is make information available to the people who are looking for it. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this said several different ways that our job is not to um, put the trees in front of people. It's to plant the seeds so that people can actually watch it grow and realize 
but there's another another saying that it's easier to convince people it's it's much harder to convince people that they've been fooled than it is to i, I can't even remember the right quote now yeah i, I know mark which one you say yeah, yeah mark twain's yeah. got a good one we'll, we'll, we'll it find it fool them you are absolutely yes. right those are great sayings and i love what you're saying about planting seeds that's yeah. really it because if we can ask a really targeted question and someone can go look up the information on their own then it's their idea they can come and come to and accept it much better if they yes. seek out that information. You're so right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. And the other thing is that all the things that they're saying about domestic terrorists, about being agents of disinformation, malinformation, all that, there's, there's a classical response to it in psychological analysis. And this is called projection. The people that are actually trying to call people that are trying to get information by calling domestic terrorists, they're, that's that's them projecting what they feel they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know I'm a big fan of Maria Montessori, the Montessori approach to education for children, but I believe it really works for adults as well. Um, the learning process when you make that self discovery, when like as a little kid, and I'll, I, I have to make a confession, you know, in school I was really good at math. I could, you know, up until a certain point, and then I just couldn't, I couldn't move beyond it. Once I got into college, it was like, I really struggled. And it wasn't until my son was in first grade, Montessori first grade, and he's doing this golden bead work. And he was laying out five strands of beads. There's five beads on each strand because he was doing five times five. And he laid it all out. And it was five times five equals 25. And I looked at that. And I realized that up until that moment, I was, my approach to math was I was a really good monkey. I knew that five times five was 25, but I didn't even have the depth of understanding of multiplication to realize that it's five sets of five. I had never been shown it visually. I'd been taught to memorize. Five times five is 25, five times six is 30, right? You know, I could go around the room and get all the answers right, but I didn't really understand the concept. And that aha moment opened a lot of things for me. Um, and, and, and that's how this is too. People have that aha moment, like the, the Helen Keller moment. Tragically with COVID, a lot of times that aha moment is either something that harmed them or harmed somebody they love when they see something and then they begin the journey but you can't force that moment on them until they're ready until they're open to that learning experience so i really do appreciate um your approach it gets so frustrating though because so many people are being harmed and you want to stop it now you want to stop the harm now <sighs> yeah okay where shall we move next? You've got a lot of information. I'm so appreciative you're still with us in the second hour. I think with where we're at right now, let's, I, I wanna say just a little something about the victims, the people who have been vaccine injured. And there's a lot of them, a lot who are speaking out on, on Clubhouse because they're shut down on Facebook, shut down on Twitter. Steve Kirsch had a, a meeting about it and it showed this Facebook post. This woman said, I haven't been feeling well since I got my vaccine and the comments were, die anti-vaxxer. I mean, that's that's how bad it is. But it's it's even worse than that, because what I have seen is that now there are studies coming out and diagnoses calling it a functional neurological disorder. 
basically telling victims that their neurological problem is all in their head. And they did that with thyroid problems. If they couldn't find that the TSH was off and the person really was hypothyroid, but their lab test didn't say they're hypothyroid, they would blame it on a functional neurological disorder, basically all in your head. So these victims, not only did they take the injection thinking that they're doing the right thing without all the proper information, no proper informed consent, but now they're ostracized from their peers. Some of them have left their job or had to lose their job because of a disability. And they're also being shamed and blamed for it. This is absolutely unacceptable. It goes above and beyond, you know, any censorship or any, um, you know, intimidation against people speaking the truth to shame the victims themselves that thought that they were doing the right thing, I think is absolutely just disgusting. I don't have a better word for that. No, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, and, and these are the tools that they are using. And so we have to help try to spread the word and be their voice. Um, I'm, you know, really glad to see, I, I try to lace our shows with some hope um, and some optimism that so many doctors um, that I, for lack of a better description on our side, <clears throat> are working very hard. And doctors who've been helping vaccine injured children for decades are stepping in and looking for ways to try to help heal. And the F, the wonderful FLCCC doctors, I was so pleased I got to meet them in person <clears throat> this past week. They were here in Tennessee, a couple of them. I got to meet Dr. Pierre Corey and Dr. Paul Merrick. It was such an honor. And Dr. Ryan Cole, Dr. Richard Urso, a couple of, um, you know, others, um, Dr. John Littell, they were here. Um, and the anyway, the FLCCC long haul protocol, they have been helping individuals um, recover some from their vaccine injuries with these products. And uh, I believe Dr. Mercola has a post on his white website, a fairly new one that has some protocols that are being proved helpful. Um, I know that there's some hyperbaric oxygen therapies that people are finding very useful for some of the symptoms. Um, you know, ivermectin is in the protocols that's helping. There's a, a drug that has now been added, I believe. Um, I it, I'm not sure if it's in the um, eye mask or um, protocols for FLCCC, but it is in their long haul, and that's low-dose naltrexone. Are you guys familiar with that one? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you're both smiling. Like, what's your experience with that one? Well, because it's so effective for people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's been used for a long time with people or for people who have autoimmune conditions. And what they're finding is that these people who have long-haul COVID have elevated um, antibodies to the nucleocapsid and also thyroperoxidase. So it's really interesting. Low-dose naltrexone is or naltrexone is extremely safe. And I, I've heard really good things about it from the FLCCC physicians. I'm so excited. And I think it's really encouraging that they are listening to the patients. They are trying these um, safe medications and they're coming up with really effective protocols. So there is lots of hope out there. Yeah. I also wanted to add though, um, for people who have gotten the injection and may be concerned, I want you just to remember that we are still in a clinical trial. It's a phase three. And I honestly believe that some people were given saline. Right. 
Some people are perfectly fine and will never have a problem. My father, my father has been injected and he's been boosted and he hasn't had one single problem. So I, I really think that they are experimenting on different things, different formulations, possibly different doses. And then again, maybe just empty LPN, um, lipid nanoparticles or saline. Right. Has this ever been done before? I mean, can they, can they actually do that? Can they roll out a product, say it's emergency use, say you're oh. getting, but not tell you you're actually in the trial. They're not telling people you, they're in the trial. You're right. They're not. Yeah. Which, which I would think is illegal, but if you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you see the dates of these ongoing experiments, they are collecting information. And especially when it comes to children, pregnant women, immunocompromised, because none of these people were studied in the original trials. Correct. And again, wow. this is one of the largest experiments in human history right now. It is 100% illegal and the rule of law is no longer applicable. These pharmaceutical companies that are doing this are behaving in a lawless fashion, aided and abetted by federal and other international agencies and governments. There's just, there's just no two ways about it. I really, and I, and I agree with you, Dr. Carver, there are so many batch variations. There's so much concentration of hot batches that there has to be a real, uh, a real spectrum of uh, batches that contain really bad mRNA, really bad lipid nanoparticles, saline lipid nanoparticles with nothing in there. And it's an experiment. It, it is absolutely plausibly deniable. And the only way we're going to find out is by actually uh, there being a major lawsuit against Pfizer and Moderna and digging into their formulations and all the batch processing that they do, because those records are required by federal law and by many national laws to be kept. And there has to be a standard set. And these are all ISO certificate certified standards that and are international. ISO stands for international something. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember international standards organization. Okay. So somebody out there must know many somebodies, if this is yes. happening, the people at the, at the, manufacturing plants, the people, somebody knows that this batch is different than that, that the formulation is different. Somebody knows yeah. saline's going into these. You know, when they break, they've been breaking up batches of vaccine products since, I don't remember the date, but it's been decades because in order to disperse potential hot batches, so there wouldn't be a cluster of injured or, or dead children. Um, they did it intentionally. Um, the thing about vaccination, I kind of say why it's so, why airline um, travel is so safe, but vaccination is not. It's because when an airplane goes down, everybody's in the same spot. It all happens in one place and it's undeniable. It's before your eyes and, and the media covers it. But when a vaccine injury occurs, it's an isolation in an office. It's here, there, everywhere. It's spread out. It's invisible. It's denied. Um, and um, but it's it's way more um, impactful, but easy to hide. So so easy to hide until now when they came out. Now, Dr. Carver, what do you do? You have any idea of why they? You know, I feel like they're pushing this technology at this time because, from what I've read, if they can. If they can utilize mRNA platform technology, it's so easy to adjust and change and develop rapidly that it's a very lucrative platform 
for drug and vaccine delivery. And they really want this because it really accelerates their profitability if they could do it. Is that what you're, or do you see any other motivation behind? Yes, it, it is very lucrative because they can develop them so much faster with this technology, but because there's no liability, they're completely protected from all lawsuits. It's nothing but profit for them. Right. There's nothing holding them back. And to speak to your point about the, how bad is my batch? There's been a lot of research into that. You can look up specific batches. I mean, even some data that looks like they were doing lethal dose testing. Um, it, it's just, it's phenomenal. Yeah. 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 It is. It's alarming. It's almost like it kind of makes us silent there for a moment when we, when we think about, but, um, where do we go from here? What else would you like to share with us, Dr. Carver, in your in your research that you have before you? Well, I'm sorry I said phenomenal. I'm, I'm meaning the research that's going on in Dr. Eden. He's one of my favorites. And everyone oh, you yes. mentioned are people that I, doctors that I follow, they're just amazing. But no, it, it's it's surreal. You know, yes. that we're being experimented on in this huge population level experiment. And then to even discuss it in children when there's no benefit and it's nothing but risk, I, I think is, is criminal. I don't have another word for that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It, it is 100% criminal. Yeah. Um, just two little brief points. One is I do want to mention that there is scientific bias. Dr. Yeah. Robert Malone did an excellent Substack post where he broke down their effectiveness. And I think it was in the five to 11 year olds, I could be wrong about the age group of the BNT, um, the Pfizer's formulation. And he broke it down. They didn't even have a conflict of interest statement in their publication. There were so many problems with it. I, I, I wrote a response and I said, you know, first year biology students have a better understanding of the scientific method and what constitutes a properly supported conclusion than these industry scientists. It is amazing that they let something like that get printed. Where are the reviewers? I mean, in my opinion, they should all find new jobs because they're not doing it at mm -hmm. all. But yet you have really good scientists like uh, Dr. Um, Dr. McCullough and Dr. Jessica Rose wrote an excellent paper on myocarditis. The journal accepted it. It was a very high-end journal. And then all of a sudden retracted their article. Yeah. This is what's happening. And this has been happening for a long time in a subtle way in the field of toxicology, where if your research is showing harm of a particular, you know, industry favorite, their baby that they don't want to look bad, you're not going to get funded. It's going to be very difficult to publish where, you know, the studies that are beneficial to these companies get all the funding they need and it's much easier for them to get published. So it's difficult to find these good studies and to put great information together because they're simply not getting published. You can go to sites like Substack and there are some journals that are coming out, some newer ones too. I'm really excited about uh, Dr. James Lyons Wheeler's, his, um, his publication. And mm -hmm. it's, I'm drawing, it's IPAC, but I'm drawing blank on as far as what everything stands for. I am excited though, because yeah. he has great work and he will publish articles that are, you know, unfavorable to the industry, to the drug companies. And that's okay. He's, he's yeah. okay with publishing the truth. But I do think that science has been hijacked and yeah. that that has been used against us. And that has been used to push the narrative, go to the CDC, go to the FDA. They're the the ones mm -hmm. that have all the, the, 
They're the ones that review the science. They're the ones that have all the articles. Well, guess what? You can lie with your statistics to make saline look like an effective drug if that's what you're going to do. And these are the type of studies that get printed, mm -hmm. yes. that get published. So it, it doesn't surprise me what um, is going on behind the scenes nowadays and how difficult, how hard is that for your average person who works a nine to five job to have time to read how they hid their statistics? We shouldn't have to. And mm -hmm. why are all these independent scientists are so, so busy looking into this and reading up on it because we're trying to find where they're hiding things. We shouldn't have to do that. Where's the transparency? Where's the credibility? Where is, where's the ethics in all this? I just feel mm -hmm. like it's falling out the window. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And, and you know, I was looking up um, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler's, uh, you know, IPAC is, um, Oh, no, it just went out of my head. I've known it for I mean, Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. Um, IPAK. And I always forget quite how to get to his journal. And there's also IPAC-EDU. Um, so he's doing this wonderful online university for the people. Prices are very affordable. And it's, it's so that each of us, can become educated to be able to understand science and to read the science and you know to become scientists ourselves if we want and it's being taught by some some of the top doctors and scientists out there you know an informed public is a free public yes you know they can't be doing this anymore so i do encourage people to go to ipac um dash edu and and look at the wonderful um offerings that is that are there and sign up and and begin to learn um he tries to make it as fun as possible there's a great course there called the vaccine course and um okay i'm gonna blank on his name it'll come to me sideways um that it, it took it was a couple of years in the making this course that goes through the history of each of the vaccines on the pediatric schedule it's right. phenomenal it there's so much authentic research in it um everything highly referenced there's videos and um okay now my dear friend's gonna like bernadette i can't believe you can't remember my name i was like on blank <laughs> Well, and before we go much further, one of the things that uh, the, the, the conversation that we're having right now really jogged my memory. When I have conversations with people that want to debate, want to have want to have a, a discussion, they always say, well, you're not an epidemiologist. You're not of this. You're not of that. How can mm -hmm. you make statements or, you know, be so, so confident in what you're saying? And it's, you know, first and foremost, science is a method. It is not a religion. And that's the big difference. Anyone with enough time and ability can figure it out, read the information and come to their own conclusion. And they can say, you know what? I'm a scientist now. I am going to go and learn the methods to do this and do it properly. Everyone yeah. else, the, the, the cult of the expert is really another form of religion that basically says you are unwashed, you are unclean, you are not fit to have this knowledge or interpret mm -hmm. the, the scripture. Go yeah. away. Let us do it. And, you know, what I always like to say is I um, I like to refer to experts, but not defer to them. You know, I have to always reserve and and see what everybody has to say, dive in and sit back. And then you have to listen to that voice inside you to whether or not you feel 
you know, which way you're going to go, who you're going to trust. So I've pulled up here um, IPAC-EDU, and here's some of the course offerings that they have. They've got them on biology, psychology, and the law, analytics. And I'm looking for the one, look at, we've got pandas and pans that's coming. Um, holistic approaches to wellness. Here's the vaccine course. Oh, shoot, it's, link isn't working. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so that's not going to uh, help it out. But that's a that's a fantastic um, course right there that I, I encourage people to check out. Look at all these great courses. Sounds um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so where are we? I have got to come back. Did I stop sharing? There we go. I'm getting a little faster on that. <laughs> I love that, though, educating people and, you know, people just doing their own research. And yes, you can refer to experts, but everybody has their own area of expertise that's very narrow. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I might research safety and feel really confident about that. It doesn't mean I understand genetics inside mm -hmm. and out. It doesn't mean so I rely on Dr. Robert Malone, um, Dr. Ryan Cole, if it's pathology, Dr. Urso, I mean, depending on what it is, Dr. Jessica Rose, if it has to do with VAERS, if it has to do, or Albert Benavides, he does a lot of research there. Steve Kirsch, I mean, he's great with numbers and analytics. So everybody has something to offer. And I think it's great that there are so many good sources of information where we can mm -hmm. read what others have done and make up our own opinion. Yeah, exactly. It, it's so important to like, that's the name of the show. And, you know, an informed life radio, trying to gather that information to make those really good informed decisions. And, you know, when you make a mistake for yourself, it's one thing. I think it's really hard for parents today because when you're thinking about making a decision for yourself, you're like, eh, if I'm wrong, whatever, it'll hurt or this or that. But when you're thinking about your child, I mean, most parents lay down their life for their child. You know, you'd, you'd lay down across the railroad tracks to protect your child. Um, and that's a vulnerable place to be with decision-making because some of those fear tactics can really work. Parents want to make the right decision for their children and the coercion um, that is being uh, used is just absolutely unacceptable. I really pray that the Washington State Board of Health, in its totality, there are some who still seem um, determined to mandate these products. But I, I hope that you know others on the board do not. I'm, I'm a, I'm a little confused about the board makeup. There's supposed to be ten members, but for the longest time, there's only been nine members. There's only been one consumer representative on the board for a couple of years now. There's supposed to be two. Um, that other seat has not been filled for quite a while. And a couple of years ago, I asked if I and other members in Fortress Washington could meet with the consumer representative so that we could inform her of our concerns about um, products that were required for school and daycare. We were told we could not meet with her, that she wasn't allowed to meet with the public. And I said, well, where's that written in the regulations? And they couldn't point it out, but they also would not give us access to her. It's something I really need to pursue. You know, you've got so many things to do and I haven't followed up. But if the consumer rep on the Board of Health is only representing her own opinion, she's not a consumer rep. She's just representing her own opinion. Um, and that's a disservice to the public. 
um, and the other seat is not filled. And, and then recently, I believe there's only been eight spots. I'm going to go check that out. I believe only eight seats have been filled. So I'm not sure um, what other seat is missing. There's two, four, six. Yeah, right now there's only eight. There's supposed to be 10. And so there's another seat that's not filled. Um, and I'm not sure who's missing to represent what. I'll have to look up what um, in the RCW is supposed to be, you know, representing, represented on the state, um, the seats that's not there. Under the RCW and the WACs, you are, you can apply for a position and you have to go through a submission process, mm -hmm. basically where you have to post your information that will become public if you want to yeah. uh, seat on one of those uh, boards. Yeah. And I, I believe the decision is the governor's though. Well, for the board of health, uh, that's a good question. I that's think you're right. That's, that mm -hmm. is, yeah, the, the governor decides. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Carver, what other information can you provide to, to parents who are afraid of COVID um, and now afraid of the vaccines? Um, what, where, where would you encourage them to look? What information do you think is important? What about treatment protocols? Is that anything that you have explored um, yourself? Not in depth because, boy. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. I apologize. I didn't tell you I was going to veer into that. We don't have to stay on the subject. It isn't something that you have looked into a lot. No, there's, there's lots of great sources. So Dr. Ryan or Brian Artis, um, you mentioned Dr. McCullough. Mm-hmm. The FLCCC, that's another great source, but we yes. heard very early on from friends of ours about ivermectin mm -hmm. um, and have had some on hand, but when we had Delta, when it went through my family, I had fevers for, you know, off and on about four days. For my sons, it was like nothing. I mean, just the sniffles and my husband didn't even get sick. So none of us really needed anything, but something that mm -hmm. we did beforehand was upper vitamin D and, you know, just a healthy diet. So I would say preventatively, I think upping your vitamin D, making sure that you're getting adequate D3 because it's better absorbed is mm -hmm. important. That helps your entire immune system. Also eating a healthy diet. Um, if you can cut out the sugars, that helps your immune system as well, but making sure you're getting the zinc and the vitamin C, all your nutrients. And then I would say just being healthy in general. Make sure that you're not sitting at home, isolated, stressing and worrying, listening to the news. Turn the news off, go out, get a walk, um, you know, spend time with family, with friends. You don't have to be afraid of people. You don't have to be afraid of hugs. It is not the terrifying death sentence um, that they've made it out to be. There are effective treatments. Hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, there's great studies coming out on them. We talked about long COVID. We talked about low-dose um, naltrexone, but FLCCC has excellent protocols. That's not my area to recommend, but there is help out there. There is early treatment that's very safe, very effective. There's no reason to live in fear from this virus that does not, for the most part, affect children. Mm -hmm. And one reason for that is because they have a strong thymus gland, so they have that strong T-cell response, but they also have fewer ACE2 receptors. And when it comes to Omicron, that's more transmissible and less virulent to begin with, their risk from Omicron is much less than the common flu. 
It is non-existent. It's negligible. I would be much more, as a parent, much more afraid of the injection than I would this virus. And I believe studies have shown that the immune response to Omicron, um, as far as um, immunity, that it's very broad, that it is, I don't know if this is the right term, like backward protective, that it seems if you get Omicron first, maybe it's you know, exposed to Delta that's still hanging around, it seems to have that backward protection. And that's because you're getting, the way I understand it, you're exposed to the whole virus, which is not just one protein. You know, these injections make your body make just one protein. But, you know, there's so many proteins in there. And if you get that that broader, um, you know, you're not the only one who has been saying that Omicron it is almost a gift because it has created so much broad natural immunity um, to help bring an end to all of this. But I think it's so important, Dr. Carver, that we continue to expose the fraud and manipulation um, and the fear campaigns that were waged and continue to be waged by our health agencies, because this has to stop. We, We cannot let this be ever repeated. Um, I found, I'm going to share with you guys here. I found the RCW that created the board of health. So let's look at that together. The state board of health shall be composed of 10 members. These shall be the secretary or the secretary's designee and nine other members to be appointed by the governor, including four persons experienced in matters of health and sanitation, one of whom is a health official from a federally recognized tribe, an elected city official who is a member of a local health board, an elected county official who is a member of a local health board, a local health officer, and two persons representing the consumers of health care. Um, and it goes on a bit. I'll kind of not read the rest of it. But... Um, they're missing two members. They're missing, uh, I'm not sure which of, besides one consumer rep, they're missing the others right now. There's only eight people listed right now um, at the State Board of Health. So they're running low. (laughs) I saw their bill for the local boards of health. And it's concerning too, because it seems like the same type of pattern where they're trying to get people who are very, pro-vax, pro-industry, pro the people who are going to vote the way that they want them to vote. That's, mm-hmm. that's, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all of these laws coming down, all of the things addressing and expanding public health. Public health is being used as a tool to control individuals under the guise of health, to control freedom, all of the states. Um quietly or not so quietly, they're, they're moving into the quiet phase, are rolling out some sort of tracking system. You know, they're putting things in place, even if they say they're not mandatory. They're just, oh, look, it's just a nice tool. So we know, you know, um, but all of this is still moving forward and being laid in place. And, and, and the broader it is, I would love to see in the realm of communicable infection, and public health, 
I would love to see them not being able to make any recommendations for pharmaceuticals at all. I would love to see them have to provide information that simply points to maybe a broad amount of information to help the public be informed, you know? Um, uh, it, to me, it's criminal that there is not one word about vitamin D on the Washington State Board of Health website or where I am, the Tennessee Department, um, or the uh, Tennessee Department of Health or the Washington State Department of Health. Um, there's a there's a wonderful bill here in in Tennessee. I don't I don't know how it's going to do. It's going to come up next week, um, where the they're asking the Tennessee Department of Health or they're telling the Tennessee Department of Health that you have to post the FLCCC protocols on your website, that you have to make them available to the public. I love that bill. <laughs> um, but you know why has it come to this? And actually, I was in a meeting. Um, with some legislators recently here in Tennessee, and there were some Tennessee Department of Health people that were seen. And this senator who says, let's get everybody to the table, flags them in. They sit down. And I had a little discussion with them. And I said, sort of like, why is there no information about health and preventatives and nutrition or vitamins on the Tennessee Department of Health website? It's just vaccines. They just blinked at me. They didn't have an answer. They said, we're not the ones to ask. And I said, okay. And I said, but you know, you're not the department of vaccines. You're the department of health. And right. you know, what can we do moving forward to put health into the department of health? But actually I would like to take them out of the doctor patient relationship entirely. Mm -hmm. Tell us to wash our hands. Tell us, please stay home when you're symptomatic, right? That sort of thing. That's what they do best. Give us clean water. Yep. Give us the ability, if, if we're poor, give us maybe some insurance that we can use so that we can afford to go to the doctor. But otherwise, let doctors be doctors. Let patients and parents choose the health paradigm that suits them best. All of the other, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much. I'm on a roll. I, I, all of a sudden I realize I'm just going on and on instead of our guest speaking. But, you know, we have all the public tools that we need to, con, you know, for public health, washing of hands, staying home when sick. If those were just enforced, if we had the ability for a parent who can't afford to stay home, if we had a fallback so that, you know, they wouldn't have to go to work sick and spread disease or if their child didn't have to go to school because they consider that child care because they can't afford child care. Um, if we could just maybe look after some things there, basic public health tools already exist that do not require them to step between the doctor patient relationship. Excellent points. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right. What else you got for us? Have you got some more information? I'm just loving what you're bringing to us today. Dr. X, I just wanted to say that I also volunteered to be on the tag group or to be part of that. <laughs> and I didn't hear anything back. <laughs> so I'm not surprised. But they do. They need a broader variety of people on their board with a difference of opinion. I mean, they mm -hmm. talk so much about equity and inclusion, but what they're doing is excluding anybody who doesn't think the way that they do. And I don't yeah. think that's right. Well, I think that uh, they view uh, having a discussion and uh, not being able to come to an agreement as being rude and somehow privileged. 
so I can see why they, they would like to surround themselves with people that think like they do and don't disagree. I, I have seen very limited disagreements, very mild limited disagreements in the Board of Health, and I have yet to see a robust and, um, how can I put it, uh, legal sort of debate between the various parties. Mm-hmm. It's always been, this is my emotion, this is how I feel, I'm afraid, therefore we have to vote this way, versus mm-hmm. these are the facts, these are the data, we're making a decision for an entire state based on these criteria. There should be a bit of a walking back and saying, well, what's the first rule? First, do no harm. Can we guarantee that we're not going to do harm? Right. No, and I cannot. didn't see that with the last tag meeting yeah. where they talked about, I mean, they, they voted against recommending it, but they said their reasons was because of the public outcry and mentioned that there were threatening emails or messages or, or something to that nature. And I, I think, why? I mean, first of all, it, they should never receive threats. That's, that's not okay. That's not okay for anybody. They're just doing yeah. the best job that they can. But second of all, their decision shouldn't have been because they didn't like what the public had to say. It should have been because this is the best choice for the kids. Yeah. Right. And it shouldn't have shifted to, okay, well, if we don't mandate it, how can we make sure as many children as possible get vaccinated? It was never, is this really the right thing? Right. Well, you know, there there was some comments that were read and there was a little bit of um, discussion at the end after they voted um, that were, were, you know, we there's just not enough evidence in yet that it does stop how it will impact transmission in school setting. You know, I do. They did say that public outrage at this was part of their concern that if they mandated it, that would grow and trust in public health would decline. Well, heck, yes, it would. (laughs) You know, Um, when you do something so absurd, of of course it would. Um, So they did have. But but yes, there was also that ridiculous spinning of it that, well, we're not going to mandate it. But what else can we do to to try to coerce people into getting it? That's absurd. And, you know, I'll I'll say his name out there because he knows, you know, Dr. Pendergrass is is leading the push. He has always led the push for this. And when he outrageously told the tag that there's no evidence that ivermectin and vitamin C and vitamin D are helpful for COVID. Are you kidding me? You know, that is just so mind blowing absurd, you know, but. And, and this man is a pediatric <sighs> oncologist. Um, something in pediatrics. Pulmonologist. I, I could be wrong, but I, I was gritting my teeth when he said that. I'm just wow. I can give you. I don't know how many studies. I can. I'd be happy to send those to you. That was my seventy-one time. at this point. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, that's a blatant lie. There's, yeah, yeah a blatant that? lie. Right, and early treatment. Oh. Um, they're um, referring a, back to like here in Tennessee, there's a, a pharmacist that's on one of the health committees. And I would, he would, he boldly said, you know, at the beginning of all this, I was, I was pro vaccine as the tool for this. But right now, what I'm really seeing is that early treatment is the way to go. I was so pleased to hear that from a pharmacist. So, you know, there are individuals who are learning, who are on the journey. Um, and and coming along, and that's so exciting to see. But um, and you know, I do not want to be accused of attacking Dr. Pendergrass. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
um, but his remarks need to be spoken of because they do. They they are so concerning, and he continued to harp on the fact, or what he considered to be fact that oh, you know, even the children at low risk, we want we don't want them to affect other people. Did was he not listening that the vaccines didn't or injections don't prevent transmission? He didn't seem to be able to hold retain that information from the beginning to the end of that conversation there, right? Let's, let's bring it all back. <laughs> and you cannot use human, children as human shields. I don't care if you do work, it's unethical to use a child as a human shield. Yeah. And what about Kathy's explanation of, of how these injections work? Did she, she failed to mention the study that showed that there was reverse transcription in vitro with right. a liver cell model where yes. it was incorporated into the DNA and actually expressed. Now, yes. why wasn't that danger mentioned before they rolled them out? You would think that that would be something they should have tested right up front. Well, again, it goes, it runs counter to the narrative that it's safe mm -hmm. and effective and it doesn't, mm -hmm. and it doesn't alter your DNA, which again, patently false. Every cell in our body has the capability of expressing reverse transcriptase. That is something that has been known since the 1980s, but yet it's still being told is gospel. These things can incorporate into the DNA of your cells. And my God, what happens if they get incorporated into the ovaries and into the testes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we got five more minutes about, and I want to leave our listeners and our audience in a hopeful place. So again, we're going to tell people that if you or a loved one did get any of the shots, there are brilliant doctors that are working very hard to help you, to help your loved ones with their health. Um, one of the places is flccc.net. Look at their protocols. Look at the long haul protocol. Go to uh, mercola.com. There's information there. Um, um, Dr. Carver, who was it? Dr. Artis, you mentioned? Yes. Mm -hmm. A-R-D-I-S. Brian, um, yes. A-R-D-I-S. Dr. Brian um, Artis, look for him. Um, who else do we have, Javier, any more that you can think of? Uh, you know, there is hope. There's hope for healing, um, you know, and we're not going to abandon each other. We're going to no. we're going to stick together um, uh, and and we're going to continue to rise up. Truth will win and we must all remain peaceful. Um I, I recorded a bit earlier today um, some of the segments I do with Dr. Paul. I do a little bit early. And, you know, kind of the theme of what's going to be next week is that, you know, we're we're going to be coming entering into a time period where a lot of truths are going to be revealed. And a lot of people who saw who who were harmed and lost loved ones um, are going to be angry. And we're going to find ourselves in this journey of being in situations where we're overwhelmed with emotion. And I want us all now to really begin studying those who have gone before us in very difficult situations, in times of injustice, in times of horror, and how they managed to hold on to some peace and find peaceful solutions. Not, um, not accepting it, fighting it, but fighting it very peacefully. Um, Javier, is do you do you have like a favorite method of protest, peaceful protest that that you turn to, that you find effective when you feel overwhelmed? 
Uh, normally, it's basically uh, when you when you're in an environment that is designed to cause you harm, you withdraw from it. You take you take all the parts that you can out. You do mm -hmm. not put your energy into that environment that is in the process of actively harming you. You create something with like-minded people, and you have to find those like-minded people. And you create a parallel process in a parallel society that will nurture you and protect you and serve as basically a lifeboat for when people do wake up, for when people do come looking for answers, for when they do come looking for help. That's beautiful. And a lot of people are doing that in many areas. We've got one minute, Dr. Carver, what have you got to say in, in just shortly? First of all, I love that. And God is my strength and my rock. I think that if we act out of peace and love, everything that we do should or are doing and will do should be from a place of love. It, it's not yes. to to point fingers at anybody. It's yep. not at a, a place of judgment or resentment or anything. Love. All we can do right. is move forward and make better decisions and help people who are coming into this now. And I do have a great detox, spike detox protocol. I'm going to send you the link so you can post it on the site. But That's there is a wonderful. lot that we can do, just loving and supporting one another, being there for one another, and sharing in each other's joys, but also in their heartache. Yes. Thank you. Thank both of you so much. Thank you, Dr. Carver, for being a guest, and Javier for being my sidekick here. I'm a child of the 60s, so I love that we're going to say, we're going to sign out with peace and love. Peace and love on our hearts, everybody. And we'll be Thank back so next much. week. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Take care. Peace and love. <laughs>
Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.